This is good. Okay. So, I'll begin, all right? Okay. All right. Welcome back. This is Presidential Podcast. I'm Philip, and... This is Robert. All right. And we're back talking about Vietnam. Hopefully, we can get it done in one or two more sessions we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be finishing up with LBJ and starting in on Nixon. And then we'll probably have, I think, one more on Nixon if necessary. And then we'll uh, be able to go forward from there. Last time we ended off basically towards the end of um, Johnson's time in Vietnam. I think we started talking about how the public tide was starting to turn on him and how he reacted to that. What was Nixon doing at the time? Was Nixon kind of waiting in the wings? Um, and you could just go ahead and begin where you feel uh, you want. All right. So let's, let's review a little bit about Johnson's career and how the tide began turning against him. Um, I think it's fair to say that Lyndon Johnson was a quintessential New Dealer in that he believed, as the New Deal generation did, and I mean the, the younger politicians who were elected into office during Roosevelt's landslide elections, 32, 34, and 36, and who really believed that the government was an important aspect, who believed in the ideas of racial integration, of general equality in economics, and of the government having a specific programmatic response to national uh, difficulties like the electrification of urban and rural areas, the interstate highway system and ground transportation, uh, health care, housing, public education, and a number of other things. So when uh, Truman left office and Eisenhower took over, Eisenhower basically continued uh, the New Deal programs that were in place and developed a bipartisan Democrat-Republican uh, basis of support for them. Uh, Kennedy took power, and his idea was more to assert American dominance in international affairs. Johnson wanted to get back to the idea that America was a moral as well as a political leader, and so the idea of uh, integration, racial integration, and racial equality was very important to him, and it appears to have been important to him as an individual and as a political leader as well. So Johnson enacted over a hundred major legislative initiatives to uh, improve economic conditions for what they call back then Negroes, people whom today we would call African Americans, uh, for people of Hispanic descent, people who we would now call uh, Chicanos, uh, and for poor whites. Uh, Johnson looked at the various geographical areas, the various sociological dimensions 
of, of poverty in particular and try to raise people's uh, level, their standard of living. And this was the so-called war on poverty. And it was to uh, better educate people, to better house people, but mostly it was to open doors of opportunity to poor people who never before had had the chance of uh, even thinking about rising to those levels of, of economic, political, and other types of leadership in our country. So the uh, death of President Kennedy, his assassination, and Johnson's extremely adept transition into power as president gave him the political capital and the moral prestige to carry out these reforms. I mean, he had a lot of uh, a lot of support in Congress because he was uh, after Kennedy's death. He uh, Johnson himself was elected by one of the historic landslides, and the Democrats in the Congress and the Senate and the House of Representatives gained substantial majorities uh, due to Johnson's great victory as in, in the presidential election. So he, he had a situation more or less similar to the situation that, that Roosevelt had as far as uh, the institutional power of the government. Johnson's situation was that he came into office at a time of great prosperity, at a time where it looked like prosperity could reach out and uh, embraced the entire American population, that we weren't desperate, but we were trying to raise the standard of the people who, who might have been left behind a little bit. So Johnson just saw that domestically things were going well, the economy was booming, it didn't look as if he had to raise taxes. In fact, Johnson was uh, somewhat of a Keynesian and believed as uh, John Maynard Keynes did that the time for government uh, austerity is more in good times. And of course that clashed quite a bit with his uh, expansive social philosophy. So, but, but because of the prosperity in the country, Johnson pretty much was able to uh, enact most of the Great Society programs without, without a lot of tax increases. I mean, people were worried about the rising government expenses and thought that at some point the rising expenditures would, would outpace the economic growth and cause rises in taxes. So the idea of uh, keeping the federal budget below $100 billion was important. And, and, and Johnson knew how to do that. You know, he kept it at like $99.99 uh, billion, dollars, a laughable amount in today's uh, almost $3 trillion federal budget. Nevertheless, um, Johnson enacted a broad array of domestic programs designed to raise blacks, poor whites, and uh, Latinos, raise their economic standard. Not extremely good on women's issues. I mean, that this is a time when they still viewed the male's role as being the breadwinner, the uh, head of the household, uh, you know, it was the man's duty to bring home, uh, bring home the family income. So they were they were still thinking in terms of of male breadwinners. 
Um, All right, can I can I can I interject? Can you yep. detail a bit maybe about the rebuilding of Europe, the debts that people that European nations owed us and had to pay back after World War Two, Eisenhower's infrastructure bill, women in the workforce. What what were the factors that brought on this wave of prosperity? All right. Um And Johnson, Johnson would... During, Johnson, during the Second World War, we were on rationing. Okay. So, people couldn't buy things freely. Certain materials like silk and nylon were uh, pretty much taken off the market because they had military uses. Food... Uh, people were were called on to save food, to, you know, not to throw anything away. Uh, what they did throw away, they were supposed to figure out some way to get to, you know, feed the cattle or something. But but mostly they were encouraged not to not, you know, just to to, to prepare enough food that they were going to eat for that particular meal, and not not waste anything, uh, not eat excessive amounts of snacks not necessarily cook for flavor, but to cook for, for nutrition. Gasoline was was highly, highly uh, rationed. And, you, you know, you, you only got to use as much gas as you absolutely needed to get to work or to run your business. And uh, businesses which weren't directly related to the war effort uh, had very limited amounts of gas. Uh, tires were hard to get because rubber was extremely rationed. So you, you couldn't drive around in the car very much because you had to worry about the state of your tires. So when people couldn't buy anything, they didn't spend any money, so they saved their money. Uh, in order to supply the war effort, the, the, the British uh, war effort and, more importantly, the Soviet war effort, we produced massive amounts of motor vehicles, tanks, ships, uh, aircraft, uh, uniforms, small arms, artillery, uh, you know, just about every food, just about every uh, type of, of, of goods that is imaginable. And obviously people had to, had to get paid for the work they did. Uh, producing all these things, mostly it was women, since uh, we drafted 12 million men, put them in the armed forces. But in any case, because people didn't have anything to buy, and because they were working, uh, there was a tremendous amount of savings. So after the Second World War, we had a lot of cash, and we had a desperate uh, need in Europe, because the infrastructure was destroyed, the residential infrastructure, all the houses were bombed, and the roofs were down, the, the windows were all crashed out, the stairs were out, the walls were crashed down. Uh, the rail system and the other ground transit was destroyed. Their electrical and wire systems were destroyed, so they had to rebuild everything. And we basically provided the cash to pay the workers, and we provided the uh, 
piping, the building materials, all that, all that sort of stuff that they needed to get back on their feet. And then during the 50s and the early 60s, we continued to supply most of the consumer goods, refrigerators, television sets, furniture, all that kind of stuff until they get back on their feet. By the mid-60s, when Johnson uh, took office, the Europeans were pretty much back on their feet and were beginning to shut us out of their markets, which, which created, for the first time, uh, negative trade balances, negative foreign trade balances for us. So even though we're prosperous, even though uh, trade was expanding, it wasn't as one way as it had been, and it was, it was getting more competitive for us. Uh, women in the workforce, they basically took it over during the Second World War, and then were marched right out of it when the soldiers returned home. Uh, what, was the, what was the other part of your question? I think that's... So? No, no, I think those are pretty much the main fact. Oh, and the infrastructure, Eisenhower's infrastructure. All right, so so Eisenhower was, was a general um, during the 1930s preparing for the Second World War uh, we had uh, a, a national army-wide uh, war game, and uh, you know we hit the first million-man army since the First World War. You know this was the year prior to our uh, engagement in the Second World War, and uh, Eisenhower was one of the planners and one of the uh, evaluators of a nation, nationwide war game, and we had to move the army basically from various uh, army posts throughout the country into the cities and around the cities, and realized we, we essentially couldn't do it, that the road and rail system was, was too too much of a hodgepodge, you know, there were too many places where the uh, roads and the tracks crisscrossed each other, where you had to wait for a long time for trains to go by. You had to slow motor vehicles way down, drive over the railroad tracks. Um, the train switching and waiting and side side uh, sidings so that uh, you could get cars off the tracks and free them for locomotives. Uh, we're, we're all just a mess. And uh, as a military planner, Eisenhower's idea was they wanted to move the troops quickly and they wanted to move them wherever they needed them so he thought a road system would be better than a rail system. Uh, so he supported the National Defense Highway Building Act built the uh, interstate highway system which was modeled on the, the German Autobahn system. And do you feel uh, that it was it was a wise move? Well, Eisenhower basically came to maturity during the 1930s. And he's a little older than that. I mean, he, 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 he was a, a junior officer in uh, the Second World War. Or, I'm sorry, the First World War. But by the, by the time Hitler started building the Autobahn in Germany. Um, Eisenhower was, was 
high enough up to see it. He was he was impressed by it. Uh, I think it was fairly apparent that the Wehrmacht, which was moving over pretty much the same ground in the Second World War as its predecessor in in the Empire, uh, the Reichswehr had moved its men. I mean, similar numbers of men. Uh, all the equipment they needed, uh, they were able to move it much faster on on roadways, on the autobahn, than they had been able to move it on their rail system uh, a generation earlier. So I think, uh, you know, if you look at the objective situation, that, that Eisenhower uh, had a very strong case in saying that a motorized uh, transit system had greater utility as a transport system than a rail system, which requires a lot of coordination, a lot of uh, a, a lot of sidings. You know, you, you, like you, you look at a city street. I mean, a lane on either side of the street is engaged in parking vehicles. On a railroad, you can't do that. I mean, you have to take all the traffic that's not moving off onto these sidings. And it's really a lot of traffic huge amounts of track, much more than on roadways. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't go anywhere where there's no tracks, whereas uh, with rubber self-propelled vehicles, you can you at least have the chance of moving off onto the secondary roads, possibly even over, over terrain, over unimproved terrain. So, you know, in the military mind, the, the system that they used works better. Um, I, I think we've advanced since then. I think we have cheaper, better ways of moving freight than what Eisenhower envisioned back in the early 1950s. But, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Okay. I mean, all right. Let's move on to... Uh, all right. Let's go back to the public beginning. I mean, the public is obviously appreciative of LBJ... They like his, you know, the, I'm sure there were high, I believe there was high popularity and high polling for his uh, war on poverty program. There was the liberal consensus, a lot of liberal uh, intellectual intelligentsia at the time felt that they could probably eradicate poverty almost completely, which is a bit optimistic, but that was the view, at least what I've read, and tell start going in about how the war efforts start to undermine Johnson's uh, popularity and, and end up costing him in the... So, so, so I agree with you that the intelligentsia definitely were liberal, definitely thought poverty could be eliminated, definitely favored Johnson's domestic programs. So it actually, neoconservatism actually was the conservative response to that, where uh, bona fide intellectuals started taking a conservative approach to things and questioning the liberal orthodoxy and the liberal consensus on those matters. Uh, but uh, that was that was in its nascent stage during the the mid '60s when we're talking about with Johnson. So that really didn't have that much of, a, of an impact on things. I think when Johnson thought about his leadership, 
and thought about his historical legacy, he also felt that he had to have a good, uh, strong international relations background. And there was a really uh, strong national uh, revulsion towards communism. And by 1965, 1966, the government of South Vietnam, the Western allied part of the country, that part of it sits with the 17th parallel, uh, the government of South Vietnam really looked as if it was on the verge of collapse, that the entire country would be reunited under the communist government in Hanoi and in North Vietnam, and that Johnson's record, his potential for re-election in 1968, would be blemished, if not uh, heavily damaged, by losing Vietnam, having it go communist, and having the sort of, you know, who lost Vietnam uh, accusations leveled against him that uh, Nixon and others leveled against the Democrats in, in the late 40s when we lost China. Mm. Uh, and and, and, and that, that thinking seems to have prevailed pretty much in Johnson's, uh, in Johnson's administration. Uh, to an extent in hindsight, but also there were people who, who thought this is the time Cuba had gone communist and the Democratic administration survived it. I mean, Cuba was, was a complete non-issue. Nobody talked about it in the 1964 election campaign. You know, some might say, well, the uh, anxiety over Vietnam pushed Cuba off the map, but, you know, that, that, that seems illogical. I mean, it seems that Vietnam was more a hobgoblin in Lyndon Johnson's mind than it was a geopolitical threat and the idea of, of uh, the American population responding in 1968 the way they had in 1948 or in 1952 just, just seemed extremely unrealistic. So, uh, in, in my opinion, this shows again how out of touch Johnson was with uh, the reality of America, how, how insular he was, you know, in that inside the beltway, under the dome type of thinking, you know, the old southern cracker uh, segregationists in the Senate. He had a lot of sway over Johnson, and they were able to completely terrify him with the idea that down home, back in Georgia, Texas, Mississippi, uh, white, res respectable white Southerners would turn against him because uh, Vietnam fell under the sway of the communists. So, now, so do you feel... Johnson... Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Do you feel... Uh, is there a parallel between the civil rights movement that happened under Johnson's term and the kind of backlash to the... I mean, backlash to the war in Vietnam. Were, were those were those kind of a two disparate um, kind of p groups, and then they joined together, or were they kind of together? But I know it was an um, odd thing because the people who 
opposed integration. And I'm going to say civil rights as a catch-all term for anti-poverty, for integration, for school desegregation, uh, you know, for the whole penalty. The people who are against civil rights, and, and there were people who opposed it. I mean, the, the governor of Alabama stood in the door of the University of, South, of uh, Alabama Registrar's Building and declaimed on national TV, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, there were people who were vehemently opposed to civil rights. Uh, but they tended to support the war in Vietnam because they felt that we should be fighting communism and assuring that the Moscow, Peking, you know, now, now we call Peking Beijing, but the Moscow-Beijing uh, axis was thwarted in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you had liberals who tended to be pro-civil rights, who were the ones who uh, opposed the war in Vietnam. They felt that we were supporting corrupt government, that we were doing everything but supporting democracy over communism. Was was there a racial... Ho Chi Minh was actually nationalist more than a communist. Mm-hmm. Was there a racial... And that even if, even if it was a communist government, it would be uh, uh, an outside the Comic-Con government like Yugoslavia. All right, but there's no, there was no sense of like, or at least very little sense of like a, a, it, the war in Vietnam being spoken of in racial terms. It was spoken of more in capitalist communist terms. I, I wouldn't say, like, that, you know, there was a disproportionate, say, you know, like, uh, I mean, Martin Luther King obviously was against the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. as were Muhammad Ali. The more, well, as were the more, uh, let me say, militant African-American leaders. Malcolm X? Uh, yeah, he was very much against it. Uh, but that didn't necessarily penetrate into the rank and file of the African-American community. I mean, they tended to be very patriotic. They had uh, esteem for the military. They had uh, high, high regard for the military profession. Um, a, lot of, a lot of African-Americans advanced in the military. You know, they're, they're, they're as brave as anybody else. They fight as, any, as well as anybody else. So they, you know, they thought when the when the when the call came, they should you know do their duty and serve. So, uh, in the leadership, I would say the African American leadership was far more opposed to the war in Vietnam than their white counterparts. Okay. But among the rank file, I would say it was very similar. That you know, black Americans were as likely to be pro-war as, as white Americans. Okay, okay. Now, um, Johnson doesn't run in 68. Correct. But the war is still going on. Tell us why he doesn't run. Were people expecting him to run? Where were his approval numbers at that time? How how, how was the war? Well, his, his polling was dropping. And 
you know, there's always an expression, you know, we we validate the polling by elections. You know, that is to say that we we conduct various uh, survey research polls, and then when we have an election, we have a, a, a certifiable across the board. I mean, like a poll, we're looking at a sample. Uh, when we have an election, we're looking at the entire population. And so we can compare our sampling results to our to, to, to the data we gain on the whole population. Uh, you know, of course, the drawback with that is, you know, when you vote, you vote for candidates, and the candidates' positions don't necessarily match the voters' positions on issues. So it's it's a little bit incomplete, but at least it gives us an idea of where everything is. So we knew that, that, that Johnson's popularity was dropping, but they didn't actually know how much it was dropping, and they didn't realize just how shaky Johnson's support was. So in the first primary, which was the New Hampshire primary in 1968, uh, a very obscure senator from Minnesota named Eugene McCarthy uh, declared his candidacy, ran on the single issue of being opposed to the war. I mean, and, and basically it was a protest, uh, it was a protest candidacy. You know, like uh, McCarthy was a pretty good, pretty moderate, pretty uh, by the party line kind of senator. He's but he was completely chagrined. He's not By to the be, war in Vietnam. He's not to be confused with Joseph McCarthy, right? No, no, they're they're all they have in common is M C C A R T H Y. Okay. You know, other than that they're completely different people. Okay. Uh different states, you know, one is Minnesota, one's Wisconsin, uh different first names, you know, different degrees of piety. McCarthy was, you know, probably Catholic, but not a good Catholic. Uh, McCarthy was pious. McCarthy was uh, Eugene McCarthy was liberal. Joe McCarthy was uh, extremely conservative. You know, so on down the line. Uh, Eugene McCarthy was a former professor. Joe McCarthy, you know, maybe finished college. Uh, Might have, yeah, maybe maybe finished college because he was an enlisted man in the Second World War. So I don't even think he he, he had a college degree. So, um, but as I, as I was saying, uh, Eugene McCarthy was completely appalled by the war in Vietnam and, and, and basically wanted to have a referendum and, you know, basically let Lyndon Johnson know, Mr. President, you've got to end this thing. And so his vote was more uh, a vote against the war. Johnson, who uh, was monumentally insecure as a, as a human being, uh, as I as I said a number of times, didn't really understand the way politics worked in the United States as a whole. Um, didn't really know how to use the executive branch to his best advantage as a political candidate got completely freaked out. Uh, McCarthy got some like 43% of the vote in New Hampshire. Johnson thought, wow, if I were running against somebody who actually had a following, 
clean my clock. And so he resigned. He told people, and, and his speech was that, you know, your president wants to have peace so that I can uh, concentrate on peace and put my whole uh, concentration on it and not have to worry about re-election. I won't run again to be your president, you know. So. Were people uh, surprised? Huh? Were people surprised? It was, it was like, uh, it was, I mean, it would be like Trump announcing today, you know, I've had enough of this, I'm quitting. He had completed, what, four no. years, five years at the time? Yes. Hmm. And he loved it. He was, he was relatively young. He was viewed as, a, as an effective president. I mean, uh, yeah, what we know now from uh, studying uh, the North Vietnamese or the Vietnamese records is that we were, we, we finally had figured it out. And he had uh, implemented a strategy that would have potentially led to uh, the defeat of the communist forces in the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were in as strong a position in 1968 as we ever were with regard to the North Vietnamese. At that point, it looked as if we had continued, we probably could have brought them again to the bargaining table, uh, figured out some sort of a way to either phase in unification or uh, extend the division of Vietnam another 30 years. You know, Johnson's Johnson's leaving office was just a complete shock. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And Nixon is is planning already because he had run in sixty. He didn't. He didn't run in sixty four though, right? Now Nixon's an interesting character because he ran for president in nineteen sixty after having served as Eisenhower's vice president for two terms. And back then, the vice presidency wasn't the, the office. It, it was not seen as a training ground for the presidency. Typically, the vice president was seen as somebody who balanced the national ticket and gave the president support and credibility with opposing factions within, within his party. Uh, so Nixon worked very hard and and became the favorite candidate of the majority of the Republican decision makers. You know, and Republican decision makers are the party leaders, the donors, and the influential citizens. You know, who constitute people who decide who gets what in the Republican Party. They like Nixon by 1960. They nominated him over Governor Rockefeller. He ran and was nearly defeated by less than 113,000 votes. You know, this this was, uh, you know, like something like the the margin that Trump won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you know, that was that was Kennedy's entire national margin. Mm-hmm. So the popular vote was essentially a tie, mm-hmm. and the uh, electoral college vote went a different way. So uh, Nixon thought that he was still a viable force in politics. He figured, you know, he needed legislative experience. He was a renowned politician from California, from the West Coast. So he figured, go home, run for governor, get elected governor, and be in a position in 64, 68, probably 68, the way they thought back then. They always figured the incumbent would get reelected. Uh, but, you know, by the time he had served six years as governor of California, he could say, you know, I've just been in charge of the second biggest political division in, in the country. I'm ready for the top job. But he got beat. So he, you know, made that same speech about not having Nixon get kicked around anymore and left politics. So uh, without Nixon and... Uh, with Rockefeller running a game, you know, uh, the Republican Party essentially became leaderless. Johnson, uh, Kennedy got killed. Johnson turned out to be uh, a highly, highly popular uh, public figure. And they went down into one of the worst uh, electoral defeats uh, any party has ever suffered in 1964. Nixon went to work who ran ran for the Republicans Goldwater yes Mudge Rose and um, oh let's see I can't remember the other partner's name but he went to work in a Wall Street law firm and uh, they gave him time to go out and make speeches so from 64 to 66 Nixon got behind every podium that he could get behind. And, you know, not for money. I mean, Nixon did not make, you know, even like $10,000, which would have been a lot. I mean, Nixon basically financed his own uh, nationwide speaking tour that went on for two years. And he appeared uh, pretty much in every major metro area. He appeared in a lot of southern states where the Republican Party was just just beginning to become a force where there were no statewide uh, Republican officials, very few uh, Republican state legislators, very few Republicans in municipal government. And and, and Nixon essentially built back the party single-handedly over two years on the speaking tour. And he he was influential in getting a minute appointed as the chairman of the Republican National Committee and Bliss, you know, pulled everything back together. So by 66, the Republican stage a, a really, a really impressive uh, comeback in the House of Representatives. So Johnson definitely felt imperiled. I mean, he thought Nixon was going to be running against him in 68. Um, he knew how close to beating them Nixon had come in 1960. He knew a lot of it had to do with Kennedy's connections, Kennedy's wealth, and Kennedy's appeal on television and his uh, tremendous uh, 
hold on the American imagination. Johnston didn't feel he had that sort of uh, charisma and personal popularity. He thought Nixon would beat him. So he decided not to run. And 68 was, I mean, it was kind of a cliffhanger, but uh, Nixon, Nixon was successful in getting the Republican nomination and rehabilitating the Republican Party. And uh, it was a freeway race, so there was a, a Southern candidate in it who cut down uh, the Democratic lead in the South enough that it offset the black vote and a couple, lost them a couple of uh, electoral college votes. So uh, Nixon got elected. And it was basically, again, you know, his, his great organizational ability, his, his great ability as a communicator, and his dedication to cultivating a uh, personal following within the Republican Party apparatus or organization, whatever you want to call it. Um, how, how, what did Nixon talk about in his speaking tour? What's that? What did he talk about in his speaking tour? So, by the mid-60s, by 66 or so, uh, there were urban riots in East, well, it was in Watts, which is a section of Los Angeles, uh, African-American uh, sector of the city, in Detroit, in Newark, New Jersey. And lesser riots in other areas, but it was, you know, it was, it was very tense. You know, you had to be really careful uh, driving around, driving through uh, black neighborhoods. Uh, you couldn't go socialize in a black neighborhood. You couldn't go to night spots there. Uh, you really had to worry about your personal safety, uh, about being robbed, about having your car vandalized. Uh, Crime was rising. There was a lot of uh, a lot of gun violence, armed robberies. You know, people breaking into into banks, entering banks with shotguns, uh, threatening the tellers, demanding all the cash be turned over. Uh, a lot of car theft. I mean, the cars back then they were it was easy to get the motor started. Uh, they were hard to lock up. It was very easy to, to gain access to the inside of the car, so they were easy to steal. Um, there were a lot of a lot of parts on the car that you could steal if you couldn't get get away with the whole car. Uh, just a, a sense of turmoil. Uh, that on the one hand, the promise of the civil rights movement didn't seem to be fulfilled, it wasn't delivering the benefits and the improvements to the, the people of color that had been promised. They were very frustrated with it. And on the other hand, uh, there was enough movement towards integration in the workplace, in social settings, in schools, that the white middle class felt extremely threatened and that the world as they knew it uh, and the standards that they had 
were being imperiled by arbitrary standards based on, on, on race and ethnicity instead of merit or seniority or some other uh, type of, of measure that they were accustomed to. So uh, that was the internal situation. In Europe, we still had a massive military presence and uh, tension, especially over Berlin, continued. Uh, Cuban Missile Crisis had occurred three or four years before, so we had uh, a lot of anxiety about uh, communist subversion in Latin America, not necessarily the introduction of foreign forces or uh, Soviet bombs and missiles, the way it had been in the Kennedy administration, but uh, Che Guevara was still alive and still raising hell down there. Uh, Luminosa Sindora had just started and other movements like that. so there was a lot of violence in Latin America directed against American companies, American missionaries, you know, basically scaring people about that. And the uh, nuclear arms race had taken a, a really, really frightening new turn in that uh, Russia had massive bombs, but now they were developing uh, vehicles. ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, that could carry multiple warheads so they could stack bombs on top of a rocket and fire it from the Soviet Union, hit anywhere in the United States. You know, as the thing came down, the the bombs would be released and they would spread out. So it went from, you know, like a rifle shot to like a a, a shotgun shot. Mm Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a lot of reason for anxiety. And the budget was going up, you know. I mean, uh, Johnson had to increase taxes, but he had, but, you know, he had to pay for Vietnam, so he and, was the... But Nixon uh, talked about all charge. of this? Nixon talked about all of this during his speaking tours? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Reagan talked about it, too. I mean, these these were, you know, these were... I mean, you still... I mean, Trump still talks about this stuff. I mean, when he talks about... When he, when he campaigned against Hillary Clinton, he brought up a lot of this stuff. What's the equivalent of a of a non-elected official doing these kind of civil civic speaking tours today? Nixon's effort at that time is singular and unique. Um, comparable one, you know, might be uh, Governor O'Malley, who still you know goes around giving speeches. Uh, of course, he was never he was never a nominee. Sanders, you know, uh, at the beginning of Trump's term, uh, Bernie Sanders. But he's a sitting, on, he's on a sitting senator. Huh? He's a sitting senator. Probably O'Malley yeah, but, is similar, but doesn't have the same profile that um, Nixon has, right? Right. I mean, they're, they're, usually once people, I mean, maybe Hillary, you know, in that period, you know, when, you know, that might have been a comparable situation. So even, even trying to find somebody to 
to compare it to, I mean, it, it, it again emphasizes how unique and how singular Nixon's action was. All right. Now, just to sum up LBJ before we go on, um, I was looking at, and we're going to, we, you can kind of finish this episode by summing up any last thoughts you had on LBJ, and then next episode we'll go into Nixon um, in more detail, but I, I was reading something where it ranked LBJ as the 10th uh, greatest president. <coughs> um, it did say it had a, you know, obviously there was a mixed... Um, a mixed bag, especially people don't give him much credit for Vietnam, which has been the focus of our talk, our conversation. But it did say he he got high efforts for his legislative accomplishments, his insistence on equality for all, and his handling of the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. Do you think 10 is too high? too low? Is that where you put him? What are your final thoughts on LBJ before we move on to Nixon? Hopefully these aren't final thoughts, but concluding thoughts for today. Um, I think LBJ was the last uh, New Deal politician. I mean, he was the last one who had living memory of it. Um, He was the last one who was in public service while FDR was serving as president and he was the epitome of the idealistic young New Dealer, you know, the long hair, uh, you know, they had long hair because they didn't have time to go to, to go to the barber, get their hair cut. They were working so hard. He was the last president who was elected by the Roosevelt Coalition of Labor, uh, segregationists, and big city bosses. Uh, And he embodied all those contradictions of that democratic coalition that that put in the office, southern segregationists, the solid sale, big labor, and urban city ethnic bosses. Uh, He didn't understand it. He couldn't control it. He didn't really pioneer anything or advance any new ideas. It was more that he uh, pulled together the main themes in liberalism and centrist uh, political philosophy got them together and advanced uh, advanced the uh, liberal agenda and and essentially killed it because now you know all of their proposals with the exception of uh, universal health care have been enacted um, they appear to be extravagantly expensive they appear to disrupt uh, important American meritocratic ideas, uh, and there was there wasn't there wasn't the benefit, the compensatory benefit, to uh, 
offset the disruptions. So that with an expensive There was, there was never any hope that the Vietnam War was going to be successful. I mean, the, the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam, was, was far, far too much the creation of French colonialism to ever have any uh, legitimacy among the Vietnamese people. It never would have been accepted in the international community. It's just a completely lost effort. Uh, and, you know, we know geopolitically that even though it had the worst nightmarish outcome, you know, all, all the bad things that American conservatives said would happen, happened after the fall of Vietnam, and yet the free world persisted. You know, it was not Armageddon. It was bad for Vietnam. It was bad for Indochina. But the rest of us just went on as though uh, Indochina didn't exist. So... Uh, I would tend to view Johnson as a failed presidency. I would not rank him as a particularly uh, impressive president. Um, so many others have just failed miserably. Mm -hmm. You know, they just, I mean, they just failed miserably. So I wouldn't rank him low, but I certainly wouldn't put him around 10. And for his marvelous, dazzling legislative gifts, he had the concomitant uh, disability as an executive. I mean, he just didn't know how to run things. Mm. And we experienced uh, at least 15 years of stagflation of a stagnant economy with high inflation as a result of Johnson's mismanagement of the economy of the federal bureaucracy, which is 20% of GDP, and his complete inability to prioritize, to manage effectively, just created a situation where people believe that government just can't do anything right. So he uh, damaged the government's ability to govern very, very seriously, and it, it, the damage has persisted, you know, 50 years after he left office. So, no, I would not consider him a great president or, a, you know, even that effective a president. I mean, people were dazzled by what he did back then. They, they look at uh, newsreels or read books about people who wrote the uh, peons, peons about uh, how great he was. But, you know, if we look at the way our country developed 50 years later, we look at the effect of uh, the Great Society and the war in Vietnam on it, we have to say Johnson was a failure. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this episode and we'll head on into our following episode about. Nixon and in particular his treatment of Vietnam so I want to thank you again um, and do you have anything you want to add? Sure I'd like to uh, what are we up to? 50 subscribers? Not quite more like 25 Well whatever the number is you know, I want to 
give a big shout out to our, our loyal subscribers and to anybody else who's listening. And thank you for listening. And uh, if you have any comments or any suggestions other than, you know, go do something else, uh, <laughs> I'd be happy to hear them. All right. Same for me. So thanks again for listening and hope to hear um, some comments from our listeners in the future.